Welcome everyone to another episode of The Full Life. We're happy you're joining us today. Today, we welcome back a friend of the show, Tyshawn Rowland, to talk about his new book and a subject that is unfortunately too common in today's country and world, fatherlessness and growing up without present fathers. We're going to talk about that next. Welcome to another episode of The Full Life. Thank you for joining us. Today, as I said, we're going to talk about a really important topic with a really special and familiar guest that we love having on the show. But before I bring him on, I want to talk, bring everyone else from the panel that you know and you love every week. So bring him on. Hi, everyone. Hey, everyone. Jazz hey, hands. everyone. How's it going? <laughs> yeah, I was like, are we doing jazz hands today? Jazz Is that what we're doing? Hey. Welcome to the well, I'm so excited to welcome Tyson today because, you know, I, as I started to reflect on this show today, it was, I reflected on God as uh, Abba, God as father. And although, you know, we, God doesn't necessarily have a gender in the way we think of gender on earth, I think the role of a father and fatherhood is a really important role to understand um, in the context of understanding who God is, and then in turn, who made how He made us in the image of uh, of Him as God. So I think it's really important topic to discuss. Without further ado, let's bring on the head student pastor of Celebration Church in Jacksonville, Florida, Tyshawn Rowland. Hey, how are you guys doing today? Welcome back. Thank you, Sean. Good to be back. I think the first time you get invited, you're a guest. The second time you're family. So I feel like I feel like I'm like close family now. That's right. The full life family. You're part of it now. You can't get out. Yes. So, so and we're and we're happy to have you. Um, so Tyshawn, I know your book is called Learning to Live Without, and it's about your own story of growing up without uh your own present biological father in your life. And I want to go into your story, how you grew up and who you wrote the book for. Yeah. Yeah. So I think my story is like you said in the intro, it's far too common. It's like people who grow up without a dad. And for so long, when you grow up without a dad, you feel like it's normal because, you know, as a kid, you believe that your norm is everybody else's. But for me, I, I was quickly, I quickly realized it wasn't because every June, I would see everybody, you know, celebrating their fathers. And it was like a great reminder that I didn't have one. And as a kid, I did feel that there was a level of brokenness. I think society would say you come from a broken home if you don't have a mom and the dad in the home. And there were a lot of things that I know that if my dad, you know, was in the picture, things would have been a little bit different. And because my dad wasn't in the picture, I had to make sure to get what a, pro a father provides from a different avenue. And, you know, as I was a youth pastor these last few years, I've seen, I've always wanted to be a preacher. I've always wanted God to use me. And I was always thinking that it would be my sermons. You know, that would be, you know, my leadership of my sermons would be the thing that would connect most with people that listen to me. And so I remember this one night I was preparing so much. Like, I think it was like my fourth or fifth time preaching um, at my new job. I was working at Free Chapel at the time under Pastor Jensen Franklin. And, and you know, to preach under Pastor Jensen Franklin is going to give you some pressure. So, so I would work so hard on my sermon. Remember one day I preached. And this kid walks up to me. His name was Tyler. I'll never forget him because his girlfriend name was Tyler. And I thought it was the weirdest thing in the world. I was like, I don't think that's going to work out down the road. But uh, he walked up to me after a service where I thought I preached the best sermon of my life. 
And he said, I felt so connected to you. And what I was waiting for him to say was, it was because your sermon was so good. But what he said was, you know, you didn't have a dad and I didn't have a dad. And seeing you up on that stage made me feel that one day God can use me in a similar way that he can use me and you. And it showed me so quick that it has nothing to do with how you preach. It's the things that you go through that really can give inspiration to other people. And so for me, that was kind of the seed into me uh, wanting to write, learning to live without. And because I think that's the that's what you're going to have to learn how to do if you don't have a dad. You know, I didn't write a book on make dad come back. I didn't make a book on bring dad back from the grave. I didn't write a book because there's certain things that you cannot control, but you can't control what you do without them. And, and there's a lot of things that I do think you can do. And so that's why I put this book together. And um, and I wrote it for uh, like a teenage version of me. So I felt like if someone would have gave me this book at 16 or even at 21 or 22 when I was stepping into adulthood, I would have saved me from a lot of problems. So that's the heart behind the book. And that's why I decided to write it. I know a lot of young men, including my husband, that could have really benefited from that book at a young age that can look yeah. back and say, I really wish I'd had a resource like this to walk me through it. So, you know, I read this stat and it's in the book that, but I, I think it's like, it's as, as common as fast food. That's how common it is that that every for one out of every four households don't have a dad in there. And when you really think about that stat for a moment, that's one out of every four households who don't have a dad to celebrate, don't have a dad to discipline, don't have a dad to give you direction, don't, don't have a dad to give you protection. And there's so many things I learned from my mom. She's the best mom in the world. I was preaching to the church this past weekend. I said, my mom is better than your mom. My mom can cook better than your mom. My mom can beat your mom up. She's the best mom in the world. But no matter how great mom was, mom can never be a dad. And there was a lot of things that I just learned, especially as I got older, especially as a husband, as a provider, I, I, I stumble on things that other my friends master simply because I never had a dad to show me. And so that's really why I wrote the book. And, and I'm really praying that it would, uh, it would help those like me. So yeah, I think culture has tried to normalize things that shouldn't be normalized. And this is one of them. And I think if we're gonna deal with it, we might as well give people the, the best setup for success in their life. So that's why that's why I'm excited to get in the hands. In fact, I gave it to a few, I was at a few student conferences this past week and I gave it to one girl and she bought the book and she read the book in three hours and she DM'd me and she was said she was crying while she was reading it. She literally felt like my story was hers and, and mm -hmm. she said she was gonna get counseling because at the end I do give some, you know, I'll, I'll give a sneak peek for those who are gonna read the book. At the end, I don't, there's no solution that's gonna solve the fatherlessness because you can't, you can't solve that, you grow with it. But the best thing you can do is get counseling and for, you know, notice where it affected you and make sure you're inviting people into that area. So it's so cool to hear her saying like, I'm gonna get counseling, I already talked to my pastor, there's a council on site, we're gonna be meeting next week. And so I'm, I'm really excited to see people get healed. So I'm pumped about it. Just how big of an issue is this fatherlessness? So people who are listening really can grab what we're really dealing with. Yeah. Who does it really affect when there isn't a father in the home? Yeah, I think it affects so many people. Thank you so much for even bringing that up. I think one of the greatest stats that it will affect is really um, how it affects the home financially. And I know that's kind of a little weird to even bring that up, but you know, oftentimes men, uh, and this is just how it is, no, no, no disrespect to anybody, but you know, the men will be the primary breadwinner in the home. And so when you don't have that money come in the home, but you still have the need to feel to pay for those bills, you're gonna feel it. I felt it as a kid. My mom was a mom taking care of two kids. She actually has three kids, but she was taking care of two kids on a on a salary of maybe thirty-five to thirty-eight thousand dollars. 
that's not that much money. And so we lived in Section 8 housing. We had food stamps. I knew that the first of the month was going to be a great time. Like, I didn't even know it was problematic. I just knew that on the first of the month, my mom's going to give us the best food from the grocery store. But you start feeling these things that you can't um, that you can't have simply because no one can provide that for you. So financially, I always felt like my life was limited because there was one income in the home taking care of three human beings outside of being two uh, incomes in the home taking care of people. So I felt that a lot. There, there's so many things throughout the book. Um, I break the book down. The first three sections are a broken home, a broken perspective, and a broken heart. And in every section, I give st statistics, not just like, because it's very unsafe. Sometimes I can say it's my experience and it can't be other people's experiences. But through data and through stats, we can see that there is a common denominator when it comes to how a home is. You take a person that doesn't have a dad, their home is going to be different. Their perspective is going to be different and their heart is going to be different. And so we have to address those accordingly. And that's what I go through in the book. I recently read a statistic that I want to read that says that individuals from fatherless homes are 279% more likely to carry guns, deal drugs, get in trouble with the law than peers living with homes that have fathers. And I think that's such a great point that you made that sort of illuminates this problem. They can say there's a, there's a great mom, there is a great grandma, a great church. When you said that, yeah. man, there was something to that. Um, but I want to read something you said in the book as well, because it also leaves you sort of trying to find a balance. Yeah. You said life without a dad is like a life spent searching for balance. We're looking for what we didn't have. So can you just maybe explain that a bit more, the looking for what you didn't have? Yeah. And then I'll talk about like um, the challenges you have with processing feelings because of that. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think a lot of ways I'm looking for balance. And, it, it, and it's in, I heard it preach when I was younger. I was about, I, I listen to sermons all the time. So you're always gonna, the example is always gonna stem from, it's never gonna be, I was playing sports. It's always gonna be like, I heard this preacher say. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember sitting in the front row and this guy was, you know, he was sharing the word of God and, and he got to the point where he just started speaking. And he said, it's so hard to be what you've never seen. And when he said that, there was a, I cannot tell you how much it resonated with me because I thought about what are things that I'm going to be required to be one day that I've never seen. I actually never seen a faithful husband in the home. I actually never seen a dad provide for his kids. I've never seen a father to celebrate. You know, I'm, I'm a little nervous when it comes to so many different things. You know, how do I provide? How do I grow? Um, you know, th this is small for some people, but I remember being 12 years old. I even feel a little embarrassed when I bring it up. I didn't know how to tie a tie. I did not know how to tie a tie. I remember giving my tie to my mom. I said, mom, we got, I got to go to this dance for school. Can you help me tie a tie? Now, I'm a, I'm a type A personality. I'm an Enneagram number five. I will read, 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 and do my best before I ever ask for help. And I've been that way since I was a child. But there was something about that crossover, y'all. I just didn't get it. I didn't understand it. And I took it to my mom. She, she, didn't, she didn't understand it. And I remember going into my room. She ended up texting one of her friends. He said, hey, bring the tie to church tomorrow, and I'll show Ty how to do it. And I remember going to my room, and I'm like, okay. I'm 12 years old, and if 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 I need help tying a tie, what else am I gonna get uh, need help with? And the next day, this guy named Eric Willis, who I um I honor in the book, um I I just remember going to him, and he was like, you're gonna you're gonna make it one day, and but it was so hard. I think as little as tying a tie or as serious as being a husband, I never saw it, and so it's so hard to be something that you never seen. I think that's for me, that's what finding the balance looks like. It's trying to figure out 
who can teach me this? Who? And so now as a young man, uh, unfortunately, I didn't have a dad. So I have to go out and call people. I have to call my pastor. I got to call uncles and certain people and say, hey, my, Victoria, my wife, she's my wife of almost three years. You know, she's being crazy. I don't know. I don't know what to do. And they're like, well, son, this is how you handle it. She doesn't matter at you. It's just to have you give her affection. Have you talked to her? Have you just went out to eat? Are you talking about work as soon as you get home? Well, yeah, I am, but I'm supposed to because I didn't have a dad to do that. So I got to do that for her. Yeah, but don't go too far. You also didn't have that to show you when going too far is. So let me help you out with that. And so as much as I try to do, I try to find balance by just talking to as many men as I can. So, yeah. Awesome. Thanks so much for sharing. I'm just like sticking it all in. But I was wondering in the book, you talk about um, this idea of broken perspective. Yeah. So I was hoping you could kind of shed light a little bit for our listeners um, about these false and skewed perspectives or views or narratives um, that we have or and specifically like ones that you've had or told yeah. yourself based on this broken lens. If you could share mm -hmm. a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, I, I talk about this, these guys in the book. Now, there's so many men that, that have made such an impact on my life, actually, to the point that when I got the book, my mom called me. She's like, do you know you didn't honor like she said, like seven names, y'all, like seven people. And they all made such a big uh, impact on my life because I think it takes a village to raise someone that doesn't have a father. And I was like, there's been so many people. But in the beginning, I'll tell you where my perspective was broken. And hopefully you guys could understand this is that when, when you don't have a man that you're around, you, you don't you don't understand how to read them. And I remember sometimes I would, I would go over to my friend's house and they would have their dad. And one of the dads I talk about, his name is Tony Bourne. Tony Bourne is the best dad, honestly, in the world. I mean, he has three kids. He stayed with the job for, I think, over 25 years in Enterprise. And every time he was around his kids, he was always happy. He was always consistent. And I remember one of the things I would never want my mom to do is when my mom would tell me, like, hey, it's time to leave. I'm like, no, I don't want to leave. I, I want to stay. And I didn't want to stay because he had a big house, though he did. I didn't want to stay because they had every video game system, and they did. I wanted to stay because I just loved just seeing him interact with his kids. Like, I remember one time I did something. I ended up stealing because, again, I was a bad kid. And I talk about this in the book, how I went to Target and I ended up stealing. And my mom, and at the time, I was a problematic child. Like, she just wasn't having it. She was so mad. She ended up calling Tony Bourne. She was going to say, hey, I need you to talk to Taishan. And I've never saw Tony mad at all. I never even saw him, like, serious from the most part. He's a very joyful man. And when I went to the church, he pulled me aside and he corrected me for what I did. And I had to be corrected because... You can't steal from Target and think that's okay. You're going to have to give all your money away to Target like the rest of us adults, you know, the right way. And so I remember him pulling me aside and he was so serious and all he was doing was disciplining me. But after he disciplined me, I never want to talk to him again. I didn't talk to him for like a month and a half because I assumed he hated me because a dad disciplining for me was a dad hating me because I just never understood that. I didn't know what discipline was. I was like, you Oh, he hates me, mom. And he had to pull me aside. He was like, you know, I love you. I'm for you. I just had to have a talk with you. But my mom never did that. And so every time a man would correct me because I didn't understand their, I didn't have their voice in my life for so much, I would be afraid. In fact, when I was a kid, I would always, um, you would always catch me going to women because it was what I was comfortable with. If, you, if I were to ask for advice, I would call a woman, not a man, because I was used to a woman's approach. And it's so cool now, I was thinking about this before I even had this uh, interview with you guys, that I was at work and I actually preferred to go to a man on our staff instead of a woman. And if you would have told 16-year-old Tyshawn that, he would have believed you, he wouldn't have, because he avoided men at all costs, because he didn't think they cared about him. And I think another way that I had a broken perspective is that because I thought they were gonna walk out on me, 
I would, I would, I would leave them. I would, I would be almost cut them off in the relationship because I was so afraid that they're not going to be there when I need them the most. So let me just punish them for what my dad did. And it was something I had to undo. I, I was punishing other people for something that they never did. And so through a lot of healing and counseling, I had to unlearn that. But I see this so common in the youth ministry because I deal with so many young people that are just like me. They think I hate them. They think I'm not going to, that I don't mean my sermons, but I mean them all. But they're used to people saying things, hey, I'm going to call you on your birthday, but dad doesn't call on your birthday. So when your youth pastor says you can call on me when you need anything, they're not even going to use the phone number. Why? Because they don't think I'm, I mean it because life has taught them that men don't mean what they say. And so that, that's really how I saw it. And I think in other people, it hits other people different ways, but that's how it hit me. Um, I come from it from a, a, a different perspective because I'm a girl who didn't have a father. And uh, for me, it, you know, how I dealt with things was a little bit different. You know, I started looking for outward things to fill up that big void that was in my life. I mean, the power of a man and the power of a father um, in a home. I, 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 if there's a man out there today, if the world is telling you, you don't matter, it is a lie because you do. And, you know, I was trying to use food. I became bulimic. I became all these crazy things trying to fill it up. And in your book, you talk about two ways that we use to heal that broken heart or to mend that broken heart. Or however, I'd love to hear you share a little bit about that. And then also to talk about how you personally, um, how you mended that heart because it's, it's real, that, that brokenness, yeah. it is real. Yeah. I, I think one, you, you can avoid it and work through it. That, that was, I think for me, I almost put so much effort in uh, my work ethic. And I talk about this in a book that I worked so hard and I thought I worked so hard because I wanted God to use me, but I think I wouldn't work so hard to be successful because I always had this picture in my mind that, I would be like, when I close my eyes, I'm, I'm a 29 or 30 year old man. I'm married. I got some kids and I made it. I got a little bit of money in the bank. I made a name for myself and I, and I pick up the phone and I, or I find out where my dad is and I go to him and I tell him, Hey, I don't need you. Um, I, I did this without you, you know, the quintessential, you know, without a, without a father story. But I realized that that's an unhealthy fuel, even though it's a, it's a working fuel, it does work, but it kills the car as you continue to put it in because you can't, you can't run off hate and you can't run off disappointment. And so the other one I would say is actually like dependence. It's either determination or dependence. And it's dependence on other people, dependence on a drug, dependence on a substance. I think we all find a way to cope with it. And I think I see a lot of people not choosing the determination route. They're choosing the dependence route. I'm not going to, I don't want to deal with it. So I'm going to avoid it. And the way I'm going to avoid it is that I'm going to drink it away. I'm going to smoke it away, or I'm going to get you know, be at the mercy of other people. So I'm going to really, really seek people's approval because I don't want that. I want them to approve of me because I feel like the greatest man doesn't. And so I think there's just two ways that we see it done. I think for me, I didn't choose the dependent route. And I think I did it in, because of my mom, but I did choose the determination route. I was just mm -hmm. like trying to force myself to be the success. And I realized that I can't try to walk into my destiny just by hating my father. I got to, my destiny is separate, uh, is separate from my dysfunction. I can't marry the two. And I think oftentimes we marry the two because we think they're both involved with one another, but they're not. And so that's what I saw so much. And I see this with so many young people where you see them cutting themselves, you see them smoking, you see them drinking, you see them sleeping around at a very young age. And then you, you get down to the details of their life. And I'm telling you, it is scary to see that that person are doing those things, the dad is either there and not involved or he's not there at all. 
It's very rare to be in a home with a great mom and a great dad that's fully involved with the parent, fully involved with the child for the child to go that certain way, because I think they're getting everything they actually need in their home. Now, I know there are some people that they have a great mom and dad and they still can end up going down that route. But I think it's a lot harder when you have that. Well, it was interesting you were saying that, Taishan, because, you know, one thing you mentioned and you're very vulnerable about in the book was uh, your uh, addiction at one point to pornography. And I mentioned that because we've we've talked about that a couple of times this year. Yeah. You know, we talked with Ar Arden Bevere earlier this year who talked about when he, there was a season where he was addicted to that. And we we taped a show with a, with a therapist that talked all about the nature of porn addiction and how, she, you know, she was addicted at one point before, before becoming a, a licensed therapist. And I shared it. I was, I have been addicted and that has been the struggle of my life, you know? So I feel very, I feel very kindred with you in that yeah. way. And in, in that, that, that is a struggle I feel is a lot of, is very similar. A lot of people go through it because it's so easy to get to. And I think particularly it fills something with, with a dad feels something yeah. with manhood. And so I'd like you to talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I think, I think for me, you know, I stumbled on porn. I remember the first time I saw it, I was uh, 12 years old in Canada, visiting my older brother and he showed me pornography. And, and from there, I remember almost being intrigued in the beginning. It wasn't even like, Oh, I want to do this. I want to watch this. I want to, you know, you know, do whatever it was. I was very, very intrigued. And then it became a form of like, you know, with all my friends, it became a form of manhood. So I felt like that became the definition of love. And that was what I was supposed to do. And then the more I went to it, it became a coping mechanism for my sadness. And and I never connected it for years. I didn't realize that the day I was the most sad was the day that I went to porn. I didn't realize the day that I was the most anxious, I went to porn. I didn't realize the days that I was the most successful that I went to porn because I was afraid I was gonna be successful again. And it was something that as a kid, I found myself going to again and again and again. And it was something that like, it wasn't healthy and I had to come to grips with like, Tyshawn, this is a problem. Because I think I think all my friends were normalizing it and it was like, oh, we're all doing it, so it's okay. And it was like, no, that, that's that's not okay. You know, if we all jump off the bridge, it's not okay, even if everyone's doing it, that's not normal. So I really, I had to come to grips by talking to other people and even talking to a man to actually get to the point where I was like, I can't do this anymore. I, that's sort of my, you know, it really spoke to me in the book because it was really sort of my experience too. Not that I didn't have a father present in the home, but I was searching for something in male attention that I didn't get. You know, I was bullied a lot. And so it felt like, oh, there's, there's a man, you know? And so I wanted, as you said, I yeah. want to just dispel that and, 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 and also underline how important this role of fatherhood is. I mean, we've been talking yeah. about it the whole show, but I mean, it's just so important, so and it's important. and I, and it's a it's a balancing act, as you yeah. said too. Even as a being a father is a balancing act well, from discipline to love and all of that. Yeah, go ahead, Carol. It's funny to me how everybody is talking in a different way. How we used something outside trying yep. to fill that void, and and it's funny that you're saying it because. It's not that you didn't have a great mom. It's not that you didn't have a great dad. It's not that, I mean, I had other things around me that should have been enough, Yeah. but it was just the lack. I mean, and I know you can talk about this when you're with your other friends and they're running to their dads and you're realizing you don't have a father to run to, or you don't have those arms to wrap around you, or you don't have, I mean, 
for a young girl. I don't know if you've ever read any of those books of how a hunger's a father's yeah. hunger, but I mean, it is just as devastating. That's why I'm talking. I'm glad you're talking about this because for a man or a boy or a girl not to have that father of those arms that wraps around you, that says you are special to me. I mean, yeah. it's just so valuable that, and just how you were talking that you, you use any kind of substance, but it's funny that we don't run to Jesus when really yeah. that's the only thing that fills. Yeah. That's the only thing that ties the knot up. Yeah. I, I, I'm sorry. I'm going to say one more thing, Hank, I promise. Um, but, but I, cause I just came to my head because I will say that I've had some perspective on this recently and I, realized that I, for a long time I was not allowing God into that era because I was very resentful that I had to deal with this. I was mad at God that I had to deal with this. So I'm not letting you into this because I'm not, because I'm mad at you, you know? And so th that's why I didn't let him in. Into I that dealt with that well. too, Joseph. I dealt with the whole trust issue with God, but of feeling like he was so passive. Yeah. And boy, I'll tell you what, it, and still to this day, passive men is really hard for me to deal with as a woman. Like I feel really like when I'm around a man that's passive, I feel really unsafe because I I just because of my issue with God wow. that I yeah. felt like he was so passive that he just let these things happen. And wow. you know, now I'm growing up and you're maturing, but I don't care what age you are. We're still in a healing process. Yeah. And I hope that's what people grab from this we're all still in the middle of a healing process of realizing who Christ is to us, you know, and letting go a little bit more to let God be a little bit more to us. Right. I mean, no, absolutely. I think as far as like pornography and a lot of bad habits that I was developing, I had to actually go to people, which I was so afraid to do because for so long, I just didn't have a man to go to, you know, you know, I could talk to mom about anything, but I'm not talking to my mom about looking at naked women on the internet. I'm just, I'm just not going to do that when that was not going to make the dinner table conversation. And so what I had to personally do is I had to go to somebody, had to be honest with them. And it wasn't like, it wasn't like be honest with them. Like, Hey, I'm struggling with pornography. I had to be at honest at the level that it was affecting me. So I couldn't say, Hey, every now and again, I remember telling a guy one day, I said, I look at porn every day. I said, every, I said, even the days I don't want to look at it, like the days that I wake up and I tell myself, I was like 15 or 16 at the time. I'm like, I'm not going to look at it today. I'm not going to do it. I would try to do it. And then before I know it, I'm right back on the website. So defeated. And then the way that shame works is that, well, I already did it once. So let me watch it some more. Let me watch it some more. But now I can't tell anybody. So now it's a secret. So now you're, you're ashamed that you did it. But now you're ashamed that you're still doing it. And you're ashamed because you're holding a secret. And it, it just, I just... I didn't want to hold it anymore. And I didn't feel like all the preachers and all the stuff that I was seeing at church, it didn't feel like the two go together. You can't, you can't preach on integrity and not have it. It could be, it can't just be rhetoric that we say. It must be something that we truly live out. Um, but for me, it was my phone. Like it was always on my phone. And then eventually I had to get to the point where I was like, I gotta surrender this to Jesus. I gotta make a sacrifice. And it's so cool to be in a place now where I'm like, you know what? Porn is not even something I don't think about it unless I'm preaching about it or unless it comes up with a leader or anything like that. So it's cool to see, because if you would have told me again at 16 years old, hey, Ty, when you get older, you're not going to struggle with pornography. I'm like, boy, yeah, yes, I will. Yes, I will. I plan on struggling. That's how that's how serious it was. And so that's what I had to do.
my years of youth ministry, I found that generally speaking, um, all the young men I worked with struggle with some aspect of, of pornography, right? Um, but then I would say generally speaking too, all the women, young women I worked with struggle with some aspect of body image. Yeah. Um, and again, these are just general blanket statements, but I think most youth ministers would argue that that's probably true, some aspects of it. But I want to kind of shift it a little bit to talk about something that I think is very pivotal in your story and in your book, um, talking about confronting your dad um, in the midst of this tragedy um, that you had in your family. Um, just tell us a little bit, tell us that story, you know, what led to it. Um, when I was about 20, 21, I started to feel like, well, you know, I'm healed. And the reason I felt like I was healed was because I wasn't talking about it anymore. And I do mention this, I was so numb to it and sometimes if we associate not feeling with healing, we're gonna, it's going gonna, it's gonna to set us up for a bad life because I was just so numb that I didn't care anymore. And I remember being in a place where I felt like I was, I was good. I, in fact, I was about 23, 24, living my best life. I was on staff at a church called Elevation Church, you know, a little old church with a little old preacher named Pastor Steve. They write a few worship songs, you know. And I remember looking up to him for many, many years and just being, I was finally on his staff. Like I was on staff at one of the campuses and just living my life, living my best life. And then eventually, um, I remember getting a phone call one day uh, from my mom and uh, she ended up telling me that my little brother and my little cousin uh, was murdered. They were murdered the night before on a Saturday night, a guy grabbed a gun and he went in a shooting spree and he killed eight people and he injured nine others and two of which that were died were my family. And it, it, it hurt me so much for multiple reasons. One, because I could have had a better relationship with my brother if I mended my relationship with my father. And so that, it hurt me that way. And it hurt me too, because I knew I was gonna have to see my dad. And I remember finally getting to the funeral and finally getting to the first of many memorials. And when you walk up and when you're at a funeral, you realize that life is a lot bigger than you think it is. And unfortunately, life is a lot shorter than you think it could be. And I remember when I saw my dad, I was so prepared, like, for the first time for me to see him to say, man, I hate you, man. I look what I made without you, man. I'm done with you, man. I'll never talk to you again. But when I saw him, I said, dad, I love you. I love you. And I'm so sorry that you lost your son because I realized that what he lost was just as, just, just if not more important than what I lost. And, you know, I, I needed to set aside my emotions and and that was like the beginning of me actually talking to my dad again. It was it was the death of my brother that brought us together. And um, I, I don't like saying that things, you know, I know a lot of people say everything happens for a reason, but I think if it's something really, really dark, I don't want to say that sometimes, but I do think God used it um, to have a form of the beginning of reconciliation between me and my dad. So through my brother's death, Jordan Blackwell, um, uh, it was, uh, I'm, I'm so sorry, give me a second. Um, it's okay, I, man. I, I don't. Not trying to cry on air. Um, Listen, we'll make sure we I, edit it so you're crying fully on air. Yeah. I cry on air all the time. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I, I think, especially now being 28 years old, and you know, knowing that one of the most horrible things that happened to me was losing my little brother, who I, who I didn't know as much as I should have, and I wasn't in relationship as much as I should have due to the hate with my father. It just showed me that life. Life is a little too short, and sometimes if you can make it right, just make it right, because you you don't know what will happen. And so for me, that tragedy opened up um, that it was time to get healed. Like I, I I can't keep allowing things like this to happen, and I won't. And so that was the beginning of me being reconciled with my dad to a certain extent. And how is your relationship today with your dad since that meeting? 
Yeah, you know, we I, I talk about this in the book. I talk about forgiveness at the end because I think it's a big part that forgiveness doesn't always mean reconciliation. And I think sometimes reconciliation could be a long, long journey. So I'm not going to say, hey, man, I wrote a book on fatherlessness and I have the perfect relationship with my dad because I don't. Um, I had to call him and tell him. I was like, hey, how you doing? Um, just a few things going on in my life. No, we haven't talked that often, but uh, I wrote a book about how you left me and I think it's going to help a lot of people. So <laughs> I, I didn't, I'm a preacher, I'm a communicator, but I really know how to drop that on somebody to say, hey, I wrote a book about you, man. Um, but, you know, it's good enough that I can pick up the phone and call them. It's good enough that I can text them if I ever need anything. Um, a lot of the big things I've done in my life, my dad has watched them. I remember one day, I was preaching somewhere. It was it was actually during COVID. I was preaching, and you know, you couldn't go travel. So what we would have to do is that we would have to record a full-on sermon with passion and then send that file to a ministry. And, you know, I, I promise you I don't do this a lot, but I was like, I knew that the ministry was playing my sermon. So I said, I'm going to go watch. And so I wanted to go watch a man myself, you know, under a fake name. Oh, he's so good. This guy's great. Bring him back, you know. And I was watching the sermon, me and my wife were watching it, and I see my dad's name. I was like, there, there's no way that's my dad. And it, it was his name. And he was like, I'm so proud of you, son. I'm so proud. He was like, that's my boy. That's my son. And he didn't know I was watching. And um, and I didn't know how much I needed to hear that. And and so to, to hear that was the beginning of me being like, you know what? I can be mad that he was gone and I can be mad that he wasn't there, but the past is over and the future is all we have. And so... Me and my dad, we're on the steps of restoration. And, and my goal would be that I don't have any kids now, but the goal would be that when I do have a kid, that I find my dad out to meet his grandchild because I'm not going to punish him for, I'm not going to allow them to be limited because of what happened between me and my father. And so I do think that down the road, I can see me and my dad being a lot closer than we are now. So yeah, we're, we're, we're on talking terms. My husband had a very similar situation when his dad died. And again, he wasn't really in his life. We went down to help clean out some things in the house. And my husband found all of his, my husband was an actor and all of his playbills from every show he'd ever done, his headshots, all of that were like every a clipping of every show he ever did. And like, that was a, a huge healing thing in his heart. And there can be little things that help us, whether it's conversations or seeing your father online. But I also know that counseling played a role for healing yeah. and healing for you. For me, I, I owe a lot to uh, Elevation Church. I, I really do. And I try to honor them for their impact in my life. And and outside of teaching me how to do ministry and being a representation of what church could be, um, they were always a great church and they try to do their best to take care of their staff. And after my brother died, anyone that knew me knew that I changed a lot. I just, I was a lot louder. I was a lot more playful. I just, I love life. But then after he died, I shifted. My personality shifted a lot. I noticed that I just kind of just was going through emotions. And I finally came on staff at our broadcast location. And about two, two months in, my supervisor just told me, she was like, hey, we need you to meet with one of our staff counselors, Heather. And I was like, and just like you said, I was very apprehensive. I was like, counselor, I'm not meeting with Heather at all. And in fact, I missed the meeting and I just assumed they were gonna forget. And so the next day they were like, hey, Ty, we need you to meet with Heather. And so I went in to meet with her and I thought that I needed, I thought I needed um, counseling for my brother to death. That's really what I thought. I thought I was gonna go in, but then Heather was like, you know what, Tyshawn, there's something greater that you need to deal with. And I actually think you need a counselor to deal with your dad issues. And I was like, and not dad issues, like she was just saying that, but just issues with not having a father. And I was like, well, I was kind of open to it. And I was like, okay, I'll kind of do it. 
and I, thinking that she was going to be my counselor. And she was like, oh, no, I'm not going to be your counselor. I think you need to have a man, uh, a man, African-American man, a tall man. And I was like, she's like, you need to have a counselor that looks like your dad. And I was so apprehensive to it. And, and you know, to her credit, she knew exactly what I needed. It wasn't the content. It was actually the person who was going to deliver it. That was just important. And so uh, I remember going to my first meeting and, and I, I kind of avoided it. It was kind of like, okay, the church paid for a certain amount of sessions. And I was like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to run these sessions out. And as soon as we're done, I can check off my box. Okay, I did counseling, Tashan's good. But this counseling man, he, he, was, he wasn't playing no games. His name was Todd and Todd, Todd didn't play no games. And so the first session he let me waste. And then the second one, he looked at me because I, I would try to get through the whole counseling session by asking him a whole bunch of questions. So that's what would happen. So he would sit down and ask me, ask me something, and I would, I would turn his question to a question for him. And he went back and forth with me. He was very honest, Jenny. He said, listen, either way, I'm going to get paid. So either way. But I can get paid and you cannot get healed. So which one do you want? Do you want to get healed? And I was like, well, Todd, come on, man. I don't think you're allowed to say that. And it was a little messed up, but he was like, I just, I just need to understand, like, do you, do you want to be whole? Like, what, what do you want? And I remember feeling the, the tension of wanting either revenge or wanting wholeness, but I couldn't have both. Like, you can't, you're either going to make them pay or you're going to forgive them and be whole. And I didn't even think it was possible to be whole. I really, really didn't. And, but then I, I remember crying in his office saying, no, I do. I want to, I want to be whole. I felt like the woman with the issue of blood. I want to be made whole. I, I want I want to come to grips with what happened and through just conversation and trauma and realizing and him unearthing a lot of things and asking me a lot of serious questions. I mean, that two and a half months changed the trajectory of my life. I can tell you my last counseling session, I was so hurt that I wasn't going to see Todd again. I was like, Todd, I'm going to miss you, man. And he was like, well, you can always start paying us. I'm not going to miss you that much. Not, not that much. I know how much we're charging you. And so that that was like the beginning of my, uh, my counseling. And it, and it really did help in, in so many different ways. I encourage anyone, especially if you have trauma like this, get counseling. Sometimes just sitting down and hearing yourself talk can be the healing itself. When you hear, why do you do this? Oh, I do this because of that? Oh my God, I actually thought it was my decision because I was doing it, but it wasn't. It was a byproduct of pain that happened. And so that's kind of how uh, that kind of worked out for me. Wow. You know, and I'm glad that we've got to this point because it's so easy for people to get stuck in your pain. Mm -hmm. We have a saying, don't park in your pain. You can't stay there. I mean, that's that's just depression and, and misery and so much. But, you know, so we're talking about you can get healing and you yeah. obviously you got healing. There yeah. is hope. Um, but what I'd love to ask is what have you learned? Um, what was limiting you? Like what 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 did it do? What part of you was limited by holding on to that hurt and resentment? My hate didn't give me permission to really love. My hate didn't give me permission to really live life because I was so caught up in holding on what my dad did. It was such a heavy weight. And the older I got, the heavier it became. And so it was the stronger than I felt. And so I felt like I needed to get stronger simply because I was holding on to that hate so much. And so for me, I really had to forgive him. I had to forgive my dad. And my process was realizing that one, and someone asked me, someone told me this, they were like, Ty, you ever thought that uh, your dad didn't have a good dad? And it just never crossed my mind. It never crossed my mind that Maybe the thing he was doing was the thing that he was taught. And um, I remember when I printed the book, I was so mad. And, I, and, and granted, I probably should have never put it in there because it's not my story to tell. It's my father's. But I remember meeting my grandfather at the funeral. He had, he had children. 
with multiple women. He he was still living a life like he was 30 and he was in his early 50s. And there were so many things in his life that he wasn't committed to. And when I saw my grandfather, I was like, it would only make sense that my dad became what he saw because that's what lended to him. And so for me, I had to really under forgive my dad because he probably didn't know better. He probably didn't know how to be a father. He probably, no one ever taught him. And so one, it was putting myself in his shoes and forgiveness is not letting, it's not letting them get away with it. It's just letting it go. It's letting it, um, it's, it's letting it be done affecting you. So for me, I had, to, I had to start forgiving my dad. It was a hard process. I did it in the beginning. I really did it. And I won't lie, every now and again, I, I, I get mad because I've always used forgiveness as a permission slip. But um, as I began to just process things with my counselor, process things with God, process things in my heart, I realized that, no, I need, I need to let this go. And it's hard. It's going to be hard. There's going to be moments I'm going to be mad, but I'm really going to have to let this go because I can't I can't let it slow me down because I feel like that God has given everyone in this earth a God-given destiny. And I believe that the Bible talks about how, um, you know, in Hebrews 11, you know, let us strip away every weight and sin. And I think a lot of things aren't sins that uh, slow, it down, slow us down. I think it's weight and the weight of unforgiveness, how heavy that thing is, will slow you down from running your race. And so out of the love of wanting to be who I was called to be, I had to let go of who hurt me. And that, and that's what, that was my dad. Yeah, I was going to say thanks again for sharing. This issue of fatherness is very personal to me as well. Um, part, part of the reason is because of, you know, my situation is my dad was actually killed when I was six years old. Um, so a lot of your story resonates. Um, but then also in youth ministry for probably 15 years, um, you see this issue of fatherlessness and it shows up in different ways. There's a lot of people who think it's like the absentee dad, right? Um, dads who aren't physically around. But there's plenty of dads who live in the house and who aren't present. Um, one of the things that's shocking is um, I think there's a New York Times study that comes out every couple of years and actually say that black dads do the best, which is always shocking to people because that's wow. the narrative, right? They share. Um, but a lot of dads aren't present, whether they're in the house and not invested or working 80 hour weeks. Um, yeah. So this issue of fatherness, it shows up and I, I just really, really appreciate what you've been sharing. I'm a little bit older than you. Um, I think by 10 years, actually. Um, but one of the things I've it's learned, great. right? Great. Oh, Hey man, is that African skin, man? You, you you born close to the equator, it just blesses you, you know. Um, but I will say though, like I think one of the things I've learned is it comes in waves, and I yeah. think that while you let go and that's good, um, for me it's been helpful to know it comes in waves, right? Yeah. So like part of my process was changing the narrative I told myself. Yeah. Right. Um, part of my process was recognizing that my mom was really, really good. And that's a blessing. Yeah. Um, part of the process was recognizing that the waves come and go. Like, so for me, some of the big ones were when I had my first child, you know, um, another wave was when I, I lived to be older than my dad ever was like, that was like another big wave. Um, and then the third wave was again, when I had my second child. So yeah, I wow. really like how you, you talked about, um, yeah, how people, this is oh, it's easy to let go. It's not a one-time thing, right? It's um like it's almost like salvation, right? Salvation is a point in a process. Like there's some people who could tell you July 19th, 2021, at 7 p.m. I chose to follow Jesus, right? Um, but for most of us, it's a process and growth and healing as well. So yeah, that letting go, I think it's helpful for people to yeah. know that like you can make those decisions, you can change those narratives, but know it comes in waves and, and give yourself grace for the process as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's so right. And I think thing comes in, <clears throat> it comes in waves and also that it yields benefits. Like, you know, you, you're not carrying bitterness around. I know there's some people that could be watching this right now and you're like, you know that you can not be bitter. You can actually let it go. You can be happier. You can be set free. All the, 
all these things that letting go frees you up to do. You're like, oh my gosh, I'm not defining my life like that. And I'm a person that I love benefits. You know, I love benefits. Tell me the deal. Tell me how I can make it cheaper. And it's not only that, tell me how to make life easier. And life gets easier when you let go. You're going to have to let go in waves. You're going to get mad again because it's a, it's a part of the process. He left you for the majority of your life. You're not going to forget about it overnight. And so for me, it was seeing the benefits, knowing that it would be a blessing, knowing that it would create a better version of myself, better version of myself, I'm sorry. And and yeah, so that's why I was letting go. And, and I'm still doing the same thing to this day. Anytime something happens in my life, I'm like, God, let me not get mad at this man. And even if I do, let me let me forgive him very quick. So yeah. Well, thank you, Tyshawn, uh, for that. And I think that's the perfect segue into, we kind of went in a little bit out of order today. And we usually start with our encouraging word, but I think... <clears throat> An encouraging word is what we should end with today because you ended with some beautiful healing in your life. And I would like to go into you sharing an encouraging word for everyone who may be out there dealing with something similar. Yeah, you know, this this past week I was reading in Mark chapter 5, verse 34 through 36. And in that story is the story of the woman with the issue of blood. But those two verses, I feel like, you know, there, there's such a tension there. And the tension is found in this. One verse says, daughter, go, your your faith has made you healed. Speaking to the woman with the issue of blood. But in the next version, um, some people walk up to Jairus, the synagogue leader, and says, don't bother the teacher because your daughter is dead. And I think one of the hardest things to do is to celebrate a daughter who just got healed when you have a daughter who just died. And I think it's so hard in this generation to celebrate people who have dads when you feel like, but what about me, God? What, what about my dad? What about my situation? I thought you were going to show up for me. And the beauty of the stories that he does, in the end of the story, he does. But one of the things that Jairus had to endure, he had to endure what they said. Life is always going to tell you, don't bother the teacher. Life is always going to tell you that you're fine. You don't need counseling. Life is always going to tell you, you know, just, just give up. But you got to endure that. And then, you know, what? we even see that Jairus gets laughed at. And I think a lot of times, you know, when we say that we're going to get through this, we're not going to feel affected by this. We can feel that people are laughing at us. Probably the person that's the source of the laughter may not be our enemy. Sometimes it can be our inner selves. Our inner self is like, I know I'm not going to get healed. You know, I remember back in the day when I was struggling with pornography, and I think anyone that is watching can do this, that you know, like, oh, one day I'm going to be healed. And on the inside, you're laughing at yourself. You're like, no, I'm not. But no, healing is actually possible. You're just going to have to endure. You're going to have to wait on Jesus. And when you do, you will see that come to fulfillment. And I believe that you can go to Jesus with everything. Did you know? that outside of jo Joseph being mentioned in the beginning of the Christmas story and Jesus looked and when they lost Jesus, we don't see Joseph again. A lot of people believe that Joseph um, either died or left. Most theologians believe that he left, which means that everything that Jesus did, he did without our earthly father. Um, and I think, you know, that can you can get some hope, you can get some faith, you can get excited in your life when you realize that everything Jesus did, it almost changes how you read it, you know? He walked on water without a dad. He led disciples without a dad. He ascended without a dad. He didn't have an earthly father. He had God, but he, he did not have a dad on earth. And if Jesus did what he did without a dad, what can we do? And so I, I hope I hope that word blesses you. I hope you're reminded that God loves you so, so much. And you can go to him with anything, even your fatherlessness. Fatherhood is a very nuanced thing. I think it sometimes is full of mercy. I think it's sometimes a thing of justice. I think it's sometimes discipline. 
and love, you know? So there's this constant balance of things that a father needs to do. And I think in our society and generationally, we've maybe gone too heavy on discipline or then too heavy on love on, the, on other generations. And I think if we look to the ultimate father, God, our father, I think you see this really beautiful balance of all of those aspects. And so I want to encourage everyone today that if you feel or were touched by Taishan's story and you feel you're not living in the fullness of life now, we pray that this show was a message to you to really go for that healing take the steps need to for healing and really live in that fullness because of course we want you to do that every single day with every single show we do because we're called the full life here and we'll see you next time for more conversations